uh, starting in the book of Luke this morning. So if you remember, we've been doing a series called Gospel Advents where we look at uh, the first uh, few verses of each gospel account. So we looked at Matthew two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Brennan looked at Mark uh, last week, and this week we're going to look together uh, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word, that you have revealed to us uh, true things, that you have revealed uh, to us marvelous things, things that uh, we couldn't possibly imagine on our own. We thank you for uh, the gospel of Luke, in which you reveal to us the marvelous glory of Jesus Christ. And pray this morning that you would help us. Lord, we confess that we are so prone to uh, have cold hearts and uh, stuffed up ears, and that we don't respond rightly to the glory of who you are. And pray that you would help us to, to see the glory of Christ that we would see the, the one who is high and lifted up, who is also the one who is with us. Lord, help us to see the glory of our Savior King and help us to respond appropriately. Help us to respond appropriately to the grand truths of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ born for us. Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, who rose from the grave, who ascended on high, who is even now seated at your right hand, uh, interceding for us and ruling over all things. Help us, Lord, to love these truths, to treasure these truths. Help us to, to listen to your word well this morning and to respond to it well. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Big truth has implications. Big truth has implications. So, uh, what do I mean by that? For instance, if if I were to say, and I'm not, this isn't actually true, okay, just imagine this is actually true. If I were to say, the roof, the roof is about to collapse. Don't worry, it's not actually going to collapse, but let's just say it, it, it was. It was about to collapse. That would be a big truth. Right? That, that would have implications. If, if the roof is indeed about to collapse, if that's indeed true, you would respond in a way that's appropriate to that truth, I would, I would hope. Right? If, if, I, if I yelled out, hey, everybody, the roof is about to collapse, what would you probably do? You would, I'm sure, get out of your pew and line up in an orderly fashion <laughs> and exit the building, right? following the exit signs and, and all that. Right? You, would, you would respond. It's a big truth, and it demands a response. With that in mind, with this, this fact that big truth has implications, let's reread Luke chapter 1. Luke, again, he writes, and God writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the opening verses of Luke here, we see that his goal is to write an orderly account of the things that had been accomplished among them. The original recipient of this letter was a man named Theophilus, apparently. Uh, probably a high-ranking Roman official uh, because Luke addresses him as most excellent. 
And Luke wants Theophilus to have certainty about, what, uh, about the things that he has been taught. So what does Luke do? He compiles a history. He compiles a history based upon the evidence of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. He, he himself uh, has heard things. He collects evidence from those who are eyewitnesses. He, he talks to those who are ministers of the word. And he compiles this history of true things. True things that actually happened. And these aren't uh, small true things, are they? These are huge truths. These are monumental truths that Luke will go on to describe. They're, they're truths that must have implications. They're truths that demand a response. Just as uh, if it were the roof were to collapse, that would demand a response. It would have implications. And again, these truths are historical truths. They're not uh, man's imaginings. It's not myth. It's not that Luke is a very good storyteller. Luke is writing an historical account of things that actually happened. And so, if these things actually happened, if these things are actually true, they must have implications. If these things are actually true, they, they actually demand a response from us. That we can't, uh, to, to, to not respond would, would be ridiculous. It would be as if the roof were about to collapse and you, you knew that and you knew it was true and you, and you stayed sitting in your pew, right? These are monumental truths. They demand a response. They have implications. And uh, among other things, Luke describes the truth of Christ's incarnation. We're going to see that. He also describes Christ's perfect life. He describes Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and he also describes Christ's ascension. And all of these are, are woven together in Luke's historical account. And so uh, it, I think it's helpful for us to actually look at them together. That uh, Jesus was not only born, but he was born to do certain things. Right? And so we want to see that all play out in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, remembering that this is a historical account. And so um, we're going to start off looking at Christ's incarnation this morning. Luke chapter 1, I'm kind of cheating a bit. Uh, you know, I'm only supposed to do the first four verses, and what do I do? I'm going to do the whole book of Luke. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke, uh, moving on, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, where we're going to see the big truth of Christ's incarnation, the fact that he took on flesh, that God took on flesh. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, first of all, I want us to, to note that these are real people. Mary and Joseph. These are real places. Galilee, Nazareth. This is, again, it's clear that Luke is giving us a historical account he doesn't make up city names. He doesn't make up uh, people's names. These are real people, real places. He continues on, verse 28. And he, that is Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, real people, real places. We have Gabriel, the angel, approaching Mary and describing what is about to happen to her. And we see that uh, in these verses that this child that she is going to give birth to is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, that he's going to fulfill the promise that God made to David that this, this son will be a son of the Most High, he'll be a son of God, and he's going to be a forever king of a forever kingdom. That should pique our interest. This, this child is 
unlike any that we have seen before. And, but that's not all. Gabriel or, or, uh, Mary goes on in verse 34 and says to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? That's an appropriate question, isn't it? How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be, done, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In these verses we see that not only will this, this child be utterly unique because he's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, not only is he utterly unique because he is going to be a forever king of a forever kingdom, but, but he's, he's utterly unique because he's not born through ordinary means. Right? He's not born the way that children are ordinary, uh, ordinarily born. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of all that. Children, you can ask your parents. <laughs> Ken, Ken says no. He's, he's born in an utterly unique way that the Spirit is going to overshadow Mary, that there's this imagery that just as the Spirit hovered over the waters uh, before creation and, and, and the Spirit, uh, th- uh, through the Spirit all things were created, that, that in a similar where, way that this child will be uh, uh, created within the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And that this child is going to be the Son of God. This child, again, is, is utterly unique. There's no one like him. But that's not all. Turn to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Not only will this child fulfill the Davidic covenant, not only will this child be a forever king of a forever kingdom, not only will this child be born uh, in, in a way that no child has been born before, Not only will this child be the Son of God, but this child will be a Savior, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, that He's a Savior who is the Messiah, the the Christ, the Anointed One. And He's Christ the Lord. The the word Lord is, uh, in the New Testament, uh, it's often designated for God. That when we're referring to the Lord, it's, it's not a Lord. You know, we could talk about kings and those sorts of uh, people in those positions as lords, but this is the Lord. This is a statement about who this baby will be, that this baby will not just be human, that this baby is actually the Lord. This baby is actually God coming down and taking on flesh, becoming like us. And if, if there was ever a big truth that we should grapple with, it's that. It's an amazing thing. It's, 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 it's something that we can't even fully comprehend that the infinite would take on what is finite. That, that God would take on humanity. The God that is omnipotent would become a weak baby. That the God who is omnipresent 
would take on the limitations of, of flesh. That the God who hates sin more than anyone else because he is good would be born into a sinful world. That should, that should boggle our mind. That should, that should be something that, that blows our mind that, that God would take on human flesh. That God would be born as the babe of Bethlehem. That God came down to save sinners. That's, that's the, the heart of the, the incarnation, right? That's the heart of the fact that God took on flesh is the gospel. The gospel, if we were to summarize it, one way we could summarize it is that God comes down to save sinners. It's not, the gospel isn't that man works himself up to God, it's that God has to come down to save sinners. That's what is happening in the incarnation here. And that has implications. First of all, the, the incarnation, this, this grand truth of Christ taking on humanity, that his implications about our own sinfulness. I mean, if you think about it, the, 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 the greater the action that is required says something about the problem, right? So if, if you require a greater action to fix a problem, usually that means it's a greater problem. So if I went into the doctor and I said, doctor, my leg's really hurting, and he takes a pair of tweezers and he pulls out a, uh, uh, oh man, I'm blanking on what, splinter, splinter, thank you, Clara. He takes out a splinter. It's a very small action, right? Why is it a small action? Because it's a very small problem. I probably shouldn't have gone to the doctor with that, okay? Now, if I go into the doctor and say, doctor, my leg's really hurting, and he has to amputate my leg. That says something about the nature of the problem, doesn't it? It says that this problem is, is severe. It's, it's serious. We can't fix this with a, with a Garfield Band-Aid and a lollipop. It needs to be amputated. It's a serious problem. And we often have this um, conception of sin where we, we think of sin as a small thing. That maybe if, if I just put a band-aid on my sin, maybe if I just do a couple of good things this week, that'll help cure the problem. But what the incarnation says, the fact that God has to come down and become a man, that, that says something about the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? That our sin is, is, is such a problem, our sin is so serious, it's, it's so severe that it requires God to come down in the likeness of, of human flesh. It says something about sin. You know, not only that, it says something about God's grace. That, that He would do that. He, did, he doesn't have to do that, but that God would come down to do that. This says something about the immense grace of God, that, that he would be born like us, that he would take on the limitations that, that we have, that he would uh, grow up as a child, that, that all of those things, and, and that he would do that knowing where it's all leading, that it's, that it's leading to the cross, to, to his death. It also says something about the humility of God. In Philippians, Paul talks about that, that, that Christ humbled himself, that he became a man, that the one who, who doesn't need to be humble, the only one that doesn't need to be humble, the only one that deserves all glory and honor and praise, who uh, deserves all of our accolades and, and all of that, that one humbled himself to become a man. And an application of that is the same application Paul gives in Philippians. If, if God so did that, shouldn't we humble ourselves and serve one another likewise? So there's this grand truth, this grand truth of the incarnation, but usually when there's a big truth, especially a big biblical truth, there's usually uh, threats to that truth, things that would seek to undermine that truth. 
And uh, with the incarnation, it, it ranges from everything uh, from denial, just people who uh, outright deny the fact that uh, Christ was actually God. But for Christians, that's probably not our, our problem, not the thing that we're susceptible to. Uh, and so some threats that we might be susceptible to, are, one is distraction. You know, we, we talk about this, this grand moment that, that God is coming down and becoming a man, and, and so often what do we focus on? We, we, we focus on the side characters. Well, look at the, the shepherds, and look at the wise men, and, and look at the angels, and look at the manger, and wow, there's goats over there. And we, we, we focus on everything else except for the things that all of those things are pointing to. <laughs> And so we need to be wary of that, that the, the point of the wise men, the, the point of the shepherds, the point of the angels, they're all there to point to the Christ. They're all there to point to the fact that God is indeed coming down to become a man. And so we want to be careful of distraction. And you know, the Christmas season, uh, the trees and the lights and Charlie Brown Christmas and and uh, they're not bad things, but, but, but we need to be wary of them distracting us from the main thing. Another threat to the, this truth of the incarnation is uh, we can be tempted to trivialize it. We can be tempted to trivialize it. What do I mean by that? Um, third commandment, we're not to take the Lord, uh, our God's name in vain. There's something that we struggle with, whether we know it or not that we have a tendency to make light of the things of God, that we have a tendency to, to make light of Him, of His Word, of His works, to, to not give Him the, the proper weight. And um, an example of this, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong about this, what I'm about to say, but the problem is within, within us, that you look at a children's storybook, for, for example, and you look at uh, Noah, the story of Noah, and how is it often depicted? Well, Noah's got a smiley face, and the animals are all smiley, and the, the water's nice and blue, and the sun's out, and it's a jolly old good time with Noah and the ark. Right? Is that making light of what just happened, do you think? What just happened? You have the judgment of the whole earth. It's not probably blue waters. It's probably dead carcasses. Noah is probably not happy-go-lucky Noah. This is, a, this is a serious thing that just happened, and what do we have a propensity to do? Just paint some smiley faces on it, and it's, right? We have a, we have a tendency to trivialize uh, the grand truths of God. And again, the problem isn't necessarily in the picture itself. The problem is in our heart. And so when we come to the incarnation, we, we can kind of do the same thing. We can trivialize this grand moment. And how do we do that? Well, we've got cute shepherds and, and cute angels and uh, the cute lambs and, and the cute wise men. And, oh, it's just a serene picture of a little baby in the, in the manger and... Uh, if that's not enough cute characters, let's add some more. Let's add a cute little drummer boy and a cute little boy shepherd. And let's add, just make it this wonderful cute scene. Okay? But what's going on here? This is the grandest moment in history. That Christ has come, that God himself has come down to be a man. This is, this is far more than a cute scene. This is a glorious scene. This is a wonderful scene. And so we want to be careful not to, to trivialize uh, the glory of this truth because when we do so, we also trivialize the implications of the truth that God has come down to save sinners. Luke goes on. Again, Jesus didn't just come on the scene to be born. Luke gives us an account of Jesus' perfect life. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, 
for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see in this passage that that Luke is giving us an account of Jesus' victory over temptation. That the devil himself uh, tries to tempt Christ multiple times, and every time Christ comes out victorious. He responds perfectly in righteousness. And this, this points us back to uh, Adam, uh, that Adam in the, the garden was tempted by the devil. He failed. Right? But what's different here is that Jesus is in the wilderness, whereas Adam had every food that he could eat. Jesus was hungry. Jesus is accomplishing what Adam failed in, in a much harder test, actually. But also, as Pastor Brennan mentioned uh, last week, that it points us to Israel. Just as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, Christ is in the wilderness for 40 days. But whereas Israel failed uh, every time with every temptation, Christ conquers. He responds righteously to every temptation. He doesn't sin. He actually lives the perfect life of righteousness. That's a big truth. That has implications. That there is actually one who did it. There is actually one who uh, completely and perfectly obeyed God. There is one that actually perfectly and completely loved the Lord his God with all, his, all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. He did it. That should, should have huge ramifications. That there is actually one who did it. You hear it often said, uh, to err is human, right? As if sin was something that is a part of uh, the essential being of humanity. That sin is a necessity to being human. Well, Christ's perfect life totally blows that out, out out of the water. That Christ does not err. And if we think back in the, the garden, what, what actually makes a human a human? Is it to sin? To make, what makes a human a human is he's made in the image of God. That's what makes humanity different from the rest of creation. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, in part, it means to reflect his righteousness, to reflect his goodness, to show what he's like. And so to err is not human, Actually, what, what is truly human is perfect righteousness. What's truly human is to be in the image of God, reflecting what he's like. Our sin is, is not an essential part of our humanity. It's actually a twisting of our humanity. Sin uh, causes us to, instead of reflecting the image of God, who are we reflecting the image of? The devil. It's a twisting of what it means to be human. And Christ comes as the perfect human. Christ shows us what it actually means to be human. Christ is the image of God, perfectly reflecting what God is like. What What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? Listen. 
It means that you must have Christ's righteousness. You must have Christ's righteousness. That you have no righteousness of your own to present before God. You need someone else's righteousness to be able to approach God. Whose righteousness are you going to get? Don't try to get mine. Mine's just as sinful as yours. Don't try to get Joe Schmoe's down the street. There's only one person who has the righteousness that you need. Because there's only one person who lived the perfect life. There's only one per- person who overcome the temptations of Satan. There's only one person who is the perfect human, the perfect image of God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so, for everyone here, you must have Christ's righteousness. You have no hope apart from it. And the question for all of of us is, whose righteousness do we want to stand before God with? Do you want to stand before God with your own righteousness? I, I sure hope not. I sure hope that you know enough about yourself to see that, that you don't have a perfect record. And so you must have Christ's righteousness. And, and how do you have it? Do you have Christ's righteousness by becoming a really righteous guy yourself? That's ridiculous. You don't, you don't become righteous to get someone else's righteousness. The Bible says to have Christ's righteousness, we simply lay hold of it through faith. We rest in what Christ has done. We, we rest in the fact that God truly did come down to save sinners. We trust in the fact that Christ really did live the perfect life that we haven't. And we'll see here in a moment, we trust that Christ really died for the sin that we have. So we must have this righteousness. Secondly, the application is we must have the Spirit work in us. Christian. You, you who already have the righteousness of Christ, you who already have your sins forgiven, don't you want to be what you were created for? Don't we want to reflect the image of God to truly be human? Well, that necessitates a work of the Holy Spirit in us to change us, to conform us into the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we pray for that. We ask for that. We pursue that. Jesus had a, a perfect life. Well, what are, what's a threat to this truth? I think probably the most common threat that I hear to this truth probably doesn't sound like a threat at all. Je- Jesus had, uh, had a perfect life. Uh, what do we often hear? Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good man. Now, that sounds very nice, right? Jesus was a good man. That statement is actually a threat to the truth of Jesus' perfection. Because Jesus wasn't just a good man, he was the good man. The only good man. That When we say, well, Jesus is a good man, and so was Gandhi, and, and so was Mother Teresa, and why not just throw me in the mix? I'm a good man too, right? That statement diminishes what Christ accomplished. Jesus was not just a good man. He was the good man, the only good man, the perfect good man. And we need to recognize that because if we think that Jesus was a good man and I'm a good man, then we don't really need his righteousness, do we? Because we're a good man too. So we need to be wary of that idea. So we've looked at so far the grand truth of Jesus' incarnation. We looked at the grand truth of Jesus' perfect life. Next, let's look at the grand truth of Jesus' death. If you would turn to Luke chapter 9 with me, starting in verse 21. This is right after uh, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. In verse 21, Jesus responds to that statement. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, the fact that He's the Christ of God. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says that this is what must happen. That He must suffer. 
He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must raise again. These things must happen. That should cause us to question, why must those things happen? Especially in the light of the fact that this is God who has become man, especially in the light that, that this is the perfect man, why should the perfect man suffer and die? Why must that happen? What necessitates the death of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the righteous one? Our sin. Our sin. Not his sin. Our sin. And so these things actually happen in history. Jesus actually was betrayed by Judas. Jesus was actually beaten. Jesus was actually denied. He was mocked. He was scourged. Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Again, these are historical facts. Luke is recording history for us. That truly the God-man lived a perfect life and died. And we must wrestle with these truths. We must respond to these truths. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. Uh, Jesus uh, has been taken in already. He's with uh, Pilate, the, the governor of uh, Jerusalem. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate is a real person. This is a historical event. And, and Herod's a real person. And when they looked at Christ, what did they find? They did not find sin. They didn't find anything deserving of death. Out of the mouth of this, this, this Roman governor, out of the mouth of Herod, they pronounce him as innocent. Historical figures, when they, they look at Christ, they see him as innocent. But what happens? How do the people respond? Verse 18, but they all cried out together. Just, just picture this, this moment. This, this man who is perfect. This, this, this man who has been nothing but loving in the most perfect ways. And, and, and how do the people respond to this man? They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. How do the people respond to the historical figure Jesus Christ? How do the people respond to the sinless Son of God? With hatred. They would rather have a guilty man who is actually guilty of, of, of murder be given to them, be set free, instead of the perfect one. How does Pilate respond? Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. He, doesn't, he sees that he's innocent. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him. The third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. You, you hear the repetition? He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. We want him dead. We want him dead. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Even though he knew he was innocent, he cared more about pleasing the crowd than doing what was right. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And what did they do with him? What did they do with the Son of God? What did they do with the perfect one? Verse 26, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry carry it behind Jesus. Simon of Cyrene, this is a real person. This is history being uh, uh, laid out here. 
And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus, they're, they're mourning for Jesus. Jesus says, hey, don't, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves because there's judgment coming. And if they did this to the innocent one, how much judgment will come upon you who are guilty? That, that judgment is coming. Verse 32, two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. They, they drove nails in his hands and his feet. They lifted him up on the cross. And the criminals, one on his right and on one on his left, he's numbered amongst the transgressors. He's treated as a criminal. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Could Jesus have saved himself in this moment? Yes, but he chose this. He decided this. This must happen. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Another testimony to Christ's perfect life coming from the mouth of a criminal. We deserve this. He doesn't. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who could make that claim other than God himself? It goes on. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, you shouldn't be surprised about what he's saying. What does he say? Certainly, this man was innocent. Another testimony to Christ's perfect life coming from a Roman soldier. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is an eyewitness testimony of Christ's death. This is, this is, this is a, a monumental truth that the perfect one, that the perfect Son of God actually uh, was condemned as guilty and hung on a tree. That has never happened in history. There's never been a truly innocent person put to death. There have been guilty people put to death for the wrong reason. But there's never been a perfect one put to death. Never a truly innocent one put to death. The God-man, the perfect one, the innocent one, was put to death as if he were a guilty criminal that has to have some implications. Some implications that we see in Christ's death. First of all, we see man's hatred of God. We don't want to divorce the truth of Christ's death from the other truths, right? Because who is Christ? He is God. And what did people want to do with him? They wanted him dead. This perfect one. It shows a hatred, man's innate hatred of God. It, it reveals, again, the seriousness of our sin. That our sin is so serious, so severe, it necessitates the death of God, as it were. 
That's the, the payment that must be paid for the penalty. This also has the implication that sin has really been paid for. That's a glorious thing. That sin really has been paid for in time. It is finished. It is accomplished. God did it. For all those who repent, who see their sin, who confess it as sin and and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That for every one of us here who have done that, our sin has actually been paid for in time, in the past. It's it's accomplished. And so when you see that that you, you still sin, Christian, you can have great hope and comfort because it really has been paid for. Christ really accomplished it. We also see the infinite grace of God that He would bear that sin. Just imagine the, the sin, the sin, all of your sins placed on, on Christ. And He bore it. He, he experienced the wrath of God that, that we deserve for our sin. Has there ever been a more gracious moment in history that God would take, take the, 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 the muck and filth of our sin and spread it on himself and be condemned, condemned and judged as a sinner both by man and, and by God? That's pure, infinite grace. Another implication Christ was born to die. That, that around this time, time of year, we, we focus a lot on the incarnation. That's a good thing to focus on. But we don't want to divorce that from his death, nor his perfect life. That this, it's a complete package. When we look at the manger, we should quickly turn to the cross. That the God who became one of us did so to live for us and, and to die from us. This grand truth of Christ's death. What are some threats to it? Well, again, out, outright denial. It's pretty easy to find someone who would deny uh, that Christ died for sinners. Uh, it's also common even among uh, those who call themselves Christian to, to divorce the truth of Christ's death from the other truths. You know, what is actually going on on the cross? Is, is Jesus just being a good role model for us? Is the whole point of the cross, you should lay down your lives for others? It's an application there. What's the point of the cross? The point is Christ is bearing our sin in the, in, in the judgment we deserve. That God actually hates sin. And God actually is gracious. And Christ actually bore that sin on his body. We don't want to forget that truth. We certainly don't want to forget the fact that Jesus was God doing this. I think we probably know people who would be more than happy to say that Jesus was a, was a good man who died on the cross. If Jesus was just a man, what's the problem there? Do you really have salvation if Jesus was just a man? Can one man pay for the life of many others? even if he was innocent. Our sin requires the infinite payment of God. We don't want to divorce it from the other truths. We also need to be wary of a sense of entitlement. Well, of course, of course Jesus did that. I mean, it's me after all. As if God somehow had to do it. That that God um, just was out of the longings of his heart. He was just pining over me. And he just needed to have me. And so he sent Jesus. And so, well, of course Jesus did that. No. This is pure grace. God didn't have to do any of it. We, we don't want to look at the cross and say, well, yeah, of course. We should look at the cross and say, really? Really? 
wow, this should astound us. It should amaze us that God would be so gracious towards people like us. And, and the moment we start thinking, well, yeah, of course, we're diminishing the grace of God. And grace by necessity is not a necessity. Someone doesn't have to be gracious. It's a gift. And so we need to be careful about a sense of entitlement. Jesus doesn't just die, right? Luke goes on to record the history of what happened. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 that uh, he would be killed and then raised from the grave on the third day. Does that happen? Let's turn to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. This is a historical account as to what happened at the tomb. They really found the tomb empty. And if we were to continue reading on, Jesus really does appear to people. And Luke is compiling the eyewitness testimonies of these people, that Christ really rose from the grave. The one born to die, died to conquer death. That's an amazing thing. The one born to die, died to conquer death. And he did it. He was successful. No other man has uh, succeeded in conquering death. You know, they say, uh, where's, uh, where's Muhammad? He's still in the grave. Right? And Buddha, he's still in the grave. Where's Christ? He rose from the grave and continued to live, to never die again. He actually did it. That's a big truth. He's the only one that's done it. Christ alone conquered death. Christ alone rose from the grave. What does that mean for us? Well, for the Christian, it means this. Christ conquered death. So the Christian does not need to fear death. That Christ has uh, taken the sting out of death. That, That we know when we die, we don't have judgment waiting for us. That when we die, actually, we have this hope of a resurrection of the body. That we will be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, uh, that guy over there, Jesus Christ, his righteousness is mine. And we'll be able to hear those words, well done, and a good and faithful servant, because of what Christ has done for us. We'll be able to enter into eternal glory and joy and uh, nothing bad about it. And so for the Christian that has huge implications. Death has been conquered. We don't need to fear death. He actually rose from the grave. For the unbeliever, for the person here who is not a Christian, who has not put faith in Christ, I tell you this in love, you should fear death. You have every reason to fear death. You, you, you may be young, you may be healthy, but 10 out of 10 people, until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, 10 out of 10 people will die. And so, the question again for you is, is, where is your hope? How can you have hope in the face of death? Who will conquer you? The only hope is to have someone to conquer that death for you. And the only person to have conquered death is Jesus Christ. And you must have Him as your conqueror, 
as, as the king, as the victor, as the one who conquers death for you. What are the threats to the resurrection? Well, you know, there's plenty of alternate theories. Um, maybe the disciples stole his body. Um, you know, maybe he didn't really die. And it's just foolishness. You have men who saw him, eyewitness accounts of him, and then they go on to die for that big truth because they realize the significance of a resurrected Savior. I mean, you look at the, the account of the apostles. Peter crucified upside down. Men sawed in half. Men boiled in hot wax. Anytime they could have said, oh, uh, didn't really see him. Didn't really happen. They go uh, to death. They are fed to the lions, literally, because of uh, their eyewitness testimony. And so you may say, well, I've never seen someone raised from the dead. Well, the fact is, there were plenty of people who saw it, and this is a historical account of it. And you've got to grapple with it. I've never seen the, the northern lights. It's on my bucket list. It doesn't mean they don't exist. Right? Jesus didn't just uh, raise from the grave. He also ascended on high. Let's conclude with that. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 52. Luke concludes his historical account of, of the birth Life, death, resurrection of Christ with his ascension. And he led them out, this is the disciples, he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Not only, uh, the story doesn't end with Christ's resurrection. The story, at least in Luke's account, ends with him ascending on high. And, and what does he do? We, we see in other places that he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Ephesians 1, 22, all things have been put under his feet. Hebrews 7, 25, he is living to make intercession for his people. The story doesn't end with the resurrection. That, that the gospel continues, the good news of what Christ has done continues with him uh, ascending into the heaven, seating at the right hand of the Father, and right now he really is ruling and reigning over all things. And Jesus is, is interceding for his people. He's praying for his people. That his work uh, continues on. And that's a wonderful truth. That has wonderful implications. And, and for the Christian, the, the, the implication is that we can take hope. Christ is ruling and reigning. He actually has all things subjected under his feet. That we can take hope that Christ is actually right now interceding for you, Christian. He's praying on your behalf. And, and I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times. Everything that the Son asks from uh, from the Father, the Father is always pleased to say yes to. We have a triune God with one will. And so whatever the Son asks for us, the Father grants. And do you think the Son asks for good things for those whom He lived for and died for? Yes. And if He's asking those things and the Father is granting them, can't, can't we have hope? Shouldn't we have hope? That, that the one who loved us enough to die for us <laughs> is the one reigning and ruling now. That the one that, who loved us enough to die for us is the one praying for us even now. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And there's some threats to that truth. You know, people talk about Satan ruling and reigning. And Satan does have a certain degree of, of authority, but all that authority is is um, uh, by the decree of God. That Satan's authority isn't somehow equal to God's authority, to Christ's authority. 
That it's not like we're in this cosmic battle world. Maybe Satan will win and maybe Jesus will win. We live in a world where Jesus is the king and Satan is subjected to him. All things are under his feet. And so we can have great hope that though things don't don't always look good, Christ is the king and he is good and he's ruling well, far better than you and I would. And so we can take hope. Another threat to this truth of, of Christ's ruling and reigning after he ascended is, is this idea that man is somehow autonomous. That, that we're somehow almost equal, equally powerful to God. That, that what we do, God is not ruling and reigning over. If that's the case, we don't have any hope. If I'm the one that's ruling and reigning just as much as Christ is, you guys should probably be scared right now. But if Christ truly is the King of kings, if his rule is even uh, over the the free choices of man, if if his rule is greater than that of Satan, if the one in charge is the one who died for us, if the one in charge is the one who is infinitely wise and infinitely good and infinitely righteous and infinitely powerful and infinitely gracious and infinitely merciful, if that's the one in charge, praise God that that's the one in charge. Amen? And He is in charge, and and He's good. And this is a truth that could give us great hope and comfort. These are all... Big truths, and they all go together, they're packaged, that, that Jesus was born, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose from the grave, and Jesus ascended on high. These are monumental truths, and you have to wrestle with them. You can't escape them. Either the, the roof comes down over you, or, or you run out, you respond correctly. And so the question for all of us is what, what will we do with the historical realities of Christ? For the, the unbeliever here, the question for you is what will you do with these truths of Christ? How will you respond? Will you, will you be a mocker? Will you be the one that scoffs as Christ is hung on that tree? Will you be the one that belittles these glorious truths so you don't, ha- don't think you have to respond to them? Or will you see that you must have these true things? You must have this true historical person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I, I pray that if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, that you would not that you would not spit on the face of God by rejecting this, this gracious gift of Christ. You must have Him. You must have Him. And for the Christian here, my, my prayer for all of us, including myself, is that, that we wouldn't trivialize these things, that we wouldn't think lightly of these things, that we wouldn't make them to be small, well, of course, sort of things that these things would grip our heart, that we would see the glory of what Christ has done, and that we would respond, that we would respond in praise and and worship of the God who's been so gracious towards us, that we would respond in in serving one another, that we would respond in in wanting uh, the glory of God to be shown and known to all the peoples of this earth, that we would respond by telling others of the glory of of the historical reality of Jesus Christ. And so let's pray for that. We need help. And let's ask God for help. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these glorious truths that these are historical realities. That these things actually happened in time. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you who are high and lifted up decided uh, to become a man, to take on humanity, to live with us, to dwell with us. 
What amazing grace. We thank you that, that Christ lived perfectly, that he conquered a sin, that where Adam failed, where uh, the nation of Israel has failed, where we certainly have failed, Christ is victorious. We thank you that in him we have his righteousness in our account. We thank you for the, the, the glory of the grand truth of Christ's death on the cross, that, that the one who is perfect would be judged as one who is uh, evil, that the one who loved to do your will would be judged as if he hated to do your will, that the one who perfectly obeyed would be judged as a, as a rotten rebel, that he would be judged as if he were us. We thank you that in Christ we have the full forgiveness of sins because he bore it all. Father, we thank you for the truth of Christ's resurrection, that he conquered death, that death uh, does not need to be something we're fearful of, that we have, uh, if anything, death is just a doorway to glory. We thank you for the grand truth of Christ's ascension and his, his session, that, that he's seated at the right hand, even now ruling and reigning and interceding for us. Pray, Father, that you would help us to love these truths, to cherish these truths, that we wouldn't make light of these truths, that we would see the weightiness of them, that we would love to tell others of them. I pray for anybody here who does not have Christ, who is trusting in their own uh, righteousness, trusting maybe in the fact that you don't really care about sin. I pray, Father, that, that they would be gripped by these realities, that they would see that they must have Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would cling to him by faith alone, by resting in who he is and what he has done for them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a glorious God that we have. Um, there'll be a prayer couple up here. And uh, hope you have a wonderful Lord's Day.